Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Before today's episode, I wanted to just step in to make this announcement. At the time of recording, the world has changed dramatically due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Many people will need to be staying at home for long periods of time and will need as much positivity in their lives as possible. Here at the Folklore Podcast, we are committed to supporting this. We recently increased our monthly hosting capacity and we'll be working hard to put out as much extra content as we can to give people something to enjoy. This content will take many forms, undoubtedly, and I hope people find it interesting and worthwhile. Importantly, all of this extra content will remain fully free to listen to. But, like many others who work in the creative industries, these next few weeks and months are going to be very difficult. Speaking engagements, public performance and so on, form part of the income which we need to survive and all of our bookings for the foreseeable future are, of course, cancelled. Whilst I appreciate that many are in the same boat, anything that you can do to keep the podcast going and putting out this extra material would be amazing. We don't take sponsorship because we want to keep the show ad-free for you. I don't want to have to change this. But, nonetheless, we need to keep going like everyone else. You can join our Patreon page from just a dollar a month, that will give you access to lots of free bonus material and help with our monthly costs. You can visit the store on the website and make a one-off donation, or buy a product. Everything will help us to keep going. But if you can't do these things, that's fine too, of course. You could share our content to others, who will also need more to listen to and enjoy. Stay safe. Be sensible. And keep listening. Tweet us, at FolklorePod, if you want to talk. Thank you. Enjoy this episode. River Weir in the county of Durham, in the north of the UK, stands Lambton Castle. It was here, according to legend, that the previous indiscretions of a member of the Lambton family brought a period of great turmoil at the hands, or rather body, of a fearsome creature known as the Lambton Worm. John Lambton, son of the castle's then lord, had taken it upon himself to go to the river and fish for trout rather than observe the Sabbath, for this day was a Sunday. Ignoring the advice of others, he fished for some time, but caught nothing. Getting more annoyed, John cursed the river, at which point he felt a large fish take the bait on his line. Lampton fought for some time before he landed his catch on the riverbank, but this was no fish. Rather, before him on the ground lay a slimy black worm, with four legs 
and a head filled with razor-sharp teeth. As he watched the powerful creature writhing on the ground, Lampton heard a voice from behind him. An old man had appeared, seemingly from nowhere. "'You must not put this back in the river,' warned the man. "'It bodes ill, but you must choose what to do with it.' And then the man was gone, as quickly as he appeared. Worried what to do for the best, John Lampton put the creature in his basket and headed for the castle. But on his way back, Lampton spotted an old well in a field. Thinking it would not be able to escape, he dropped the worm into the void. Years passed and John Lampton forgot all about the events of that Sunday. Eventually, he left the area and joined the Crusades. But in all of that time... The worm had been growing. Another normal year passed, but then events took a turn for the worst. Sheep were killed, cows stopped giving milk, and people drinking the well water began to fall ill. One morning, villagers passing the well found a trail of black slime leading to the river. Following it, they discovered, coiled around a rock, a gigantic worm. Looking like a dragon with no wings, it had huge, sharp teeth and evil-smelling fumes escaped from its nose and mouth. During the day, the creature would stay on the rock in the river, but at night it swam ashore and, because of its enormous size, wrapped itself three times around one of the hills. Aside from eating sheep to sate its great hunger, the worm would also tear open cows, because it liked the taste of milk. Some tried to kill the animal, but it was too strong for them and few survived. Any that did manage to cut a piece from it with a sword were surprised to discover that the detached flesh would crawl back to the animal and reattach itself. One day, the worm paid a visit to Lampton Hall, but they were already prepared for it. They had a stone trough which was filled with warm milk, and two sheep were tied alongside it. The creature ate the sheep and drank the milk, and, satisfied, went back to the hill. And so each day the same offering was placed there, and each day the worm came and took it. The rest of the village remained untouched. This continued for seven years. The Lampton worm got bigger and bigger, and the people got more poor. And then, one day, a knight in armour appeared at the castle. It was Sir John, returned from the Crusades. He asked why the land looked so devastated, and was told the story of the Great Worm. Sir John Lampton realised that it was the creature that he had caught on that Sunday and which he had thrown down the well, which had grown into this hideous worm. Knowing that he was responsible, he vowed to everyone that he would destroy the monster. He visited a local witch, who confirmed that only he could kill the worm. She instructed him to visit the local blacksmith and have a suit of armour fashioned with blades on its surface. Then, she said, he must go to the rock and blow his horn to summon the worm. The witch then gave Sir John a warning, telling him that if he killed the worm, then he must also kill the first thing that crossed his path as he crossed back over the threshold to Lampton Hall. 
If he did not, then for the next nine generations no other Lampton would die at peace in their beds. Sir John Lampton followed the advice of the witch and had the armour made. He walked out into the river and, standing next to the worm's rock, blew his horn. Sure enough, the creature appeared and, recognising Sir John, attacked him. A bitter fight followed. Each time Sir John cut a piece from the worm, it was washed downstream before it could reattach itself. The worm tried to crush the knight, but was impaled on the armour's blades. Eventually, the monster was defeated. A prearranged signal of three blasts on the horn was blown. Hearing this, Sir John's father was supposed to have released a dog, which would have run to meet Sir John, and which could therefore be slain as the first to cross his path, and hence complete the vow. But, in the excitement, his father forgot to release the animal. Realising this, Sir John blew the horn again, and the dog was released, but alas, too late. Although Sir John slew the poor animal, the damage was already done and for the next nine generations there was no peace for the family. The story of the Lampton Worm is often dated to the 14th century, and is certainly based on the actual family. The story is seemingly made more valid and reinforced as a piece of folklore because, at least for the next three generations, the Lampton family did indeed suffer some less than quiet deaths. In the first generation, Robert Lampton was drowned, in the second, Sir William Lampton, an army colonel, was killed at Marston Moor, and in the third, William Lampton died in battle. Opinion on where it was supposed to have taken place is split. Local versions of the tale associate it with the appropriately named Worm Hill in Fatfield. Later, the story was immortalised in a famous folk song, number 2337 in the Roud Song Index, and in this, the location was changed to Penshaw Hill. The song was written in 1867 by Clarence M. Lumaine, known as Jack. Lumaine was an operatic tenor and librettist. He wrote the song for a children's pantomime, which was first performed at the Tyne Theatre and Opera House in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, after which its popularity spread. Although usually attributed as being in Geordie tongue, the words are written in a local dialect known as Mackham, which relates solely to the city of Sunderland. Dialect in this part of the world can be very heavy and difficult to understand for some. But now that you have heard the legend, listeners who are not from the UK should still be able to pick up most of the story. So, here is Tyneside musician Roly Veach, who kindly gave his permission for his version of the song to be included in this episode. One Sunday morning Lampton went a fishing in the weir, and he catched a fish upon his yook, he felt looked very queer. But when they came to fish it was, young Lampton couldn't tell. He wasn't fashed to carry it, yam, so he hired it do no well. Wished lads had your gobs and I'll tell you all an awful story. Wished lads had your gobs and I'll tell you about the worm. Young Lampton felt inclined to gun and fighting for him was. 
So he joined a troop of knights that cared for neither wounds nor scars. And off he went to Palestine where queer things in befell. And very soon forgot about the queer woman in the well. Wish lads had your gobs and I'll tell you all an awful story. Wish lads had your gobs and I'll tell you about the worm. But the worm got fat and growed and growed and growed an awful size, with great big teeth and great big gob and great big gobbly eyes. And when it needed crawled about to pick up bits and news. If he felt dry upon the road, he milked a dozen coos. Wished lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you all an awful story. Wished lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you about the worm. This awful worm would often feed on lambs and calves and sheep. And swally little bands alive when they lay down to sleep. And when he'd eaten all he could, and he had had his fill, he crawled away and lapped his tail ten times round Penshaw Hill. Wish lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you all an awful story. Wish lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you about the war. Of this most awful worm in his queer gunnings on, soon crossed the sea, got to the ears a brave and bold Sir John. So Yemi come and catched the beast and cut him in three halves, and that soon stopped him eating bairns and sheep and lamb and calves. Wish lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you all an awful story. Wish lads had your gobs, and I'll tell you about the worm. Sides of the weir, lost lots of sheep and lots of sleep and lived in mortal fear. So let's have one to brave Sir John that kept the bands from harm, saved coos and calves by making halves of the famous Lambton worm. Now lads, I'll had me gob, that's all I know about the story of Sir John's clever job with the famous Lambton worm. Rowley has an interest in the local history of his area, as well as dialect, song and culture. The Lampton Worm comes from his CD Gan Canny, which is available from his website, where there are also some fascinating articles on local dialect and the songwriters who used it. You'll find a link to the site in the notes for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website and podcast apps. My thanks to Rowley for letting us use the track. Versions of the song can still be found in more contemporary music as well. Alan Prince, a former band member with The Animals, fused folk and rock music in a version on a 1982 album called Geordie Roots and Branches. Roxy Music singer Brian Ferry recorded a version in 2001 as part of the album From Tees to Tyne, and other versions by The Mitford Family, Morag and Landermason show that the song is far from obsolete as well as also giving it a female voice. There was even an opera on the story, composed in the 1970s by Robert Sherlaw Johnson. The story of the Lampton Worm is far from unique, of course. It is in many ways tied in with the famous fable of St George and the Dragon. 
There are many other worm stories with similarities to Lambton in folklore. In the UK, we might include the Bamber Worm, where a beautiful lady from Bamber Castle is turned into a worm by the evil queen, who of course suffers her comeuppance in the end. Scottish folklore from possibly as early as the 12th century provides the Linton Worm, which has definite parallels. The story here is located at Linton Hill, in a place locally known as Worm's Den. Again, the serpent here destroyed livestock and decimated the land. The local laird, either William or John de Somerville, depending on the version, visited the local blacksmith who, in this story, fashioned a long lance. Somerville attached burning peat to the tip and killed the worm with a fatal blow to the mouth. Once again, the Somerville family are actual historical figures. Another version, the Sockburn Worm, is very similar, having a local knight called Sir John Conyers' fighter serpent, which again has terrorised the land for seven years. We can, in fact, find around 20 different stories from just counties surrounding that where the Lambton Worm is set. In many of them, they are tied to local aristocratic families defeating the creature. Together, these stories form good examples of the ways in which folk narratives are adopted by people and changed and adapted so that they fit the needs of the storyteller. There is usually a set of core parts of the narrative which remain very similar. With these worm stories, these include the taste for milk, the location of a hill, often with a local name attribution to the legend, which still exists in modern times. Being defeated by a hero, often returning from other battles, and usually signifying the importance of the local gentry family. The period of growth and terrorising the village. Other elements which occur in some stories are the witch and the transformation from a local maiden to creature. Cross-culturally, there are both similarities and marked differences between the worm stories in the north of the UK and other dragon or serpent tales. There are many stories of water beings, and the Lambton worm certainly resembles a water dragon in many ways. But the story is not traditional in its destruction of the creature in the same way that St George and the Dragon is. Folk anthropologist Jamie Terrani believes that the Lambton worm is more of a redemption story because of the angle of John Lambton catching the creature in the first place, on the Sabbath day when he should have been in church, you'll remember. This sets it aside from the normal Dragon Slayer narrative. Also, Instead of winning the girl, as is often the case, all John Lampton wins is a family curse because he will not kill his father who crosses his path first. The trope of killing the first thing to cross your path is very common in folk narratives with regard to other things too, but we need to not go into the detail of that just now. So, could this story of the Lampton worm be an early example of a kind of toxic masculinity of some sort, as some suggest? Lampton ignores the witch's advice. The worm is a phallic image which terrorises women and children and needs to be controlled. There are some interesting ideas here, but of course it is a strong male figure that does the defeating. And is the witch really ignored, or is it just the joy of defeating the creature that causes the father to forget to release the dog? It's probably a matter of personal opinion how you see this, 
and one that you might like to debate on our Facebook discussion group or Twitter feed. Another version of this story, albeit deviating wildly from the original, can be found in the film The Lair of the White Worm by Ken Russell. Here, there is certainly plenty of phallic imagery and sexualisation. Folklore Podcast volunteer Celine Paxton Brooks reviewed the film for us and provides the following commentary. The Lair of the White Worm is a comedic horror film written and directed by Ken Russell. He based his screenplay on Bram Stoker's 1911 story The Lair of the White Worm, a.k.a. The Garden of Eden, which had been written a year before Stoker's death. The narrative is based on the legend of the Lambton Worm and is set in Derbyshire in 1860. The book was not well received on publication, with critics saying that it had potential but showed a clumsy writing style. And although Bram Stoker is well known for his horror writing, we almost never hear about this final novel. Stoker's story uses the idea of mesmerism and voodoo to create a murderous tale centred around a white worm, a large snake-like creature that lives underneath the home of Lady Arabella March. In fact, Lady Arabella is the embodiment of a snake herself, described as a tall, sinewy woman wearing a white flowing dress, with piercing eyes rimmed by green spectacles, and a large emerald necklace coiled around her neck. The protagonist, Adam Sultan, discovers black snakes on his land and buys a mongoose to sort out the problem. Later, he purchases Diana's Grove, home to Lady Arabella which happens to be the lair of the white worm itself, and blows up both Arabella and the worm, raising the house to the ground. Stoker includes a West African voodoo slave and a hypnotist, Caswell, to add a mysterious air to the story. While writing, Stoker had been suffering from Bright's disease, and it is reported that at the end he went mad with visions of serpents taking over his head and the world. The Lair of the White Worm is a controversial film that Russell only actually made because he wanted funding by Vestron for another feature film, while undertaking a three-picture deal. He was given a small budget for the film and was told that actress Catherine Oxenberg was to have a starring role in it. Russell always stated that had he had a bigger budget, he would have made something really wild and memorable. It took him just four days to write. The story follows Bram Stoker's tale, but with added vampirism. The film starts with Angus Flint, Peter Capaldi, excavating a giant dragon-like skull in an archaeological dig at Mercy Farm, on the land owned by Lord James Dampton, Hugh Grant. The snake references begin immediately with a twisty hose in the garden, and a coin that bears the symbol of the cross and entwined snake supposedly a Roman Christian image later shown in a mosaic found on the dig site. We are treated to a great 80s shindig at the manor house where everyone is celebrating the anniversary of the slaying of the Dampton Worm. A banquet and a white Chinese dragon-like dance are taking place, with a Celtic folk rock band playing a version of the song we heard earlier. Russell had always felt his roots in traditional stories and music, and in 1997 he made a documentary for Channel 4 Films asking the question, what is a true English folk song, if there is such a thing? Which looked at traditional folklore and its musical heritage, 
showing his love of folk songs and stories. Snake-like imagery is in abundance, and the party buffet is a visual feast of worm-inspired dishes, with octopus tentacles, eels, and a huge plate of dubious spaghetti. Lord Dampton gives us the lowdown on the history of the Dampton worm, its origins steeped in German and Anglo-Saxon folklore, and the valiant knight who slew the dragon. On the way home from the party, Mary Trent, Sammy Davis, and Angus take a shortcut, and we find out that her parents have gone missing, swallowed up, leaving her and her sister Eve, Catherine Oxenberg, as orphans. A mysterious car interrupts the lover's first kiss and disappears up the drive to Temple House, a deserted property only a few metres up the road. On returning home, Mary is met by the local police officer, Ernie, who gives her a watch that had been found in Stone Rig Cavern by some potholers. It is her father's, and the search for her missing parents is to be resumed the next morning. Back at Temple House, the police constable goes to check on the car and sees mysterious lights on in the house. He calls for backup, and whilst in discussion, Ernie is bitten by a snake. The beautiful and alluring Lady Sylvia Marsh, Amanda Donohoe, comes to his rescue, appearing from behind a tree at just the right moment. Donohoe plays the part of the snake woman to perfection, and the costume department really go to town by giving her a wardrobe of snake-like outfits that echo the colours and patterns of the reptiles that she venerates. Lady Marsh worships the pagan god Dionin, Glycon, and has returned to the manor with the uncovering of the prehistoric skull. The house is on the site of a former Roman shrine, and we later find that the lair of the worm is deep underneath, in the bowels of the earth. The next morning, when Mercy Farm is empty, Lady Marsh searches for the skull, and on leaving she reveals her fangs and spits green slime at a crucifix on the landing wall. Russell introduces the viewer to his religious conversation. Christianity pitted against paganism, or vice versa. He includes dream sequences and flashbacks that show the juxtaposition of the two religions. These images are no doubt included to shock and provoke a reaction from the viewer, and these additions create a counter-story that Celine really didn't think the film needed, but is one that seems to have become Russell's signature since making The Devils in 1971. Eve is portrayed as the reincarnation of a raped nun from the pillaging of a convent on the site of the farm, and we see Christ on the cross surrounded by a serpent, as depicted on the coin at the archaeological dig. Russell focuses now on the white worm, Lady Marsh. She seduces a boy scout over a game of snakes and ladders and meets her nemesis, Lord Dampton, who interrupts her as she paralyses her prey in a huge round bathtub. On returning to his home for the night, Dampton is drawn to the painting on his bedroom wall of his ancestor slaying the worm. He then has a strange dream of travelling on an aeroplane, with the girls, Sylvia, Eve and Mary, dressed as blue-stockinged air hostesses. Another morning searching the caves brings the realisation that perhaps the worm never died, and that, like the common worm, it may have regenerated itself after being cut in half, 
and is still hidden away deep inside Stone Rig Cavern. The boys go off to look for a phallic cave drawing, whilst Eve decides to call it a day. She walks back to the farm and encounters Lady Marsh in a tree. Eve is mesmerised. Sylvia takes Eve back to Temple House, where we then see Donahoe basking on her sunbed, naked. The conversation between the two women gives us more background information, and we find that Lady Marsh is immortal, Eve was once a nun, and that she is about to be sacrificed to the White Worm. Once Mary realises that Eve has been kidnapped, the three friends realise that something is not quite right at Temple House. How did it take this long to work that out? And Dampton searches for a gramophone record belonging to his father of Turkish snake-charming music, which he knows is there somewhere. He places his speakers on the roof and plays the music to charm Lady Marsh out of Temple House. Here begins a series of snake-based scenarios, including sending in a mongoose, the traditional enemy of snakes, and picking up again on some of the important threads in Stoker's story. The conclusion, as you will have probably gathered, is that Lady Marsh is thwarted and the Dampton Worm is blown up, as per Stoker. Russell does add a little sting to its tail, but it is rather predictable and again doesn't really add to the story. To be honest, says Celine in her review, the lair of the White Worm doesn't really follow the traditional tale of the Lampton Worm, but did try to bring it into the cultural psyche of the 20th century with a few modern twists. Russell uses the basis of Stoker's novel and incorporates the folk song as an anchor to ground his ideas. He throws out the voodoo slave and adds the vampire premise, perhaps harking back to Stoker's most famous story, now fully entrenched in our literary history. Russell's continuing urge to shock his audiences with religious and sexual references eventually led to studios refusing to finance his films, and he was left to make his own low-budget experimental films in his garage. Such a shame for one who has made some truly beautiful films. Hugh Grant is said to hate the film and refuses to talk about it. Catherine Oxenberg, who had been brought in at the request of Vestron, found that Russell had dubbed her voice, no doubt as recompense for the fact that she was forced on him. Amanda Donahoe steals the show, with her seductive snake-woman portrayal, which really is a joy to watch, and I'm sure that the original Lampton Worm would have loved to have her on its side. The closest thing to the original folktale is the song that is repeated throughout the film. The film is definitely worth a watch, and even though not hilariously funny, it has some great one-liners that will leave you grinning. Thanks to Celine for providing that insight into the film. In the same year, Anthony Schaefer wrote a sequel to The Wicker Man called The Loathsome Lampton Worm about a Scottish police officer battling a worm. The piece was never produced. Until now. A new, full-cast audio version of the Schaefer treatment has now been made. And here is an extract. Wake up, McTaggart! Oh, Sergeant Harry! What 
are you doing here? You're not supposed to be on duty tonight, are you? No, I'm not. But McTaggart, I'm here on a different kind of duty. A special mission, if you like, which you are part of as of now. Now, I need you to gather your things and come with me, quick as you can. Sergeant, I can't abandon my post. I'm supposed to... Constable, this is a direct order from your sergeant. Now, gather your things and come with me, quick as you can now. Please, am I understood? Right you are, Sergeant. Give me two minutes. Very good. Where are we going, Sergeant? The seaplane. The seaplane? What on earth for? You and I have been selected to go back to Summer Isle. Summer Isle? Selected by who? Higher powers, Constable. Higher powers. Now quickly, move yourself. In you get, McTaggart. I'll get the ropes. Right, yeah, Sergeant. Goes there. Sergeant Howie, is that you? What in blazes are you doing untethering those ropes? I am taking this plane. On whose authority? On whose authority, Sergeant? The highest authority that there is. Sorry, Sergeant. We're going to have to radio this in. Hello? Is that the station? Wait till you hear this. I've got Sergeant Neil Howie. I'm sorry, but nothing is going to stand in my way. All good, Sergeant. Aye, McTaggart. Let us waste no time. A bit cloak and dagger all this, isn't it? Under the dark of night and all that. What's the reasoning there? They'll not see us coming. We can take them by surprise. Oh, right then, Sergeant. Come on, let's go. Hello? Who's in the plane? Heather is there. You're unauthorised. What's that about? Worry about me, Taggart. It's probably just some hooligans stamping with the frequency. Now, feel free to get some sleep. But, Sergeant, the radio... It is fine, Constable. Uh, right, old Sergeant. Wake me when we're there, then. Aye, aye. Finally, here is the director, Stephen Sloss, to talk about this new version of the story. Hello, listeners of the Folklore Podcast. My name is Stephen Sloss, and I'm the director of The Loathsome Lampton Worm, which is a feature-length, full-cast audio drama sequel to the original The Wicker Man. Now, the cool thing about The Loathsome Lampton Worm is that it's based on a story treatment written in 1989 by Anthony Schaffer, who wrote The Wicker Man, as well as things like Sleuth and Hitchcock's Frenzy. Now, what I've done is take Schaffer's treatment and personally adapted it into a full-length audio drama script, which we cast and recorded at the end of summer last year and have now released. I first read about The Loathsome Lampton Worm in Alan Brown's book, Inside the Wicker Man, How Not to Make a Cult Classic. I thought it was so interesting because the very idea of a sequel to The Wicker Man that continues the story of Sergeant Howie sounds like something of an oxymoron in and of itself, because anyone who's seen The Wicker Man knows Howie's story ends pretty definitively. 
But Schaffer envisaged a sequel that sees Howie return and get into even stranger situations when he returns to Summer Isle in an attempt to bring the islanders to justice. And that was just too interesting a premise to pass up. I remember when I first read Schaffer's treatment back in my university days and having wished I could see it. And that's what eventually, years later, gave me the idea to have a go at producing it myself. Now, I love sequels that pick up at the exact moment the original film finishes, like Back to the Future Part 2 and Evil Dead 2, and The Loathsome Lampton Worm does exactly that. My producer, Ross Menzies, and I assembled an incredibly talented cast of Scottish stage and screen veterans to bring these iconic horror characters back to life, led by Alec Westwood as Sergeant Howie and Jamie Roberts as Lord Summerisle. We were so lucky to work with such an incredibly exciting group of people, and we know listeners like yourself will love hearing them too. The Loathsome Lantern Worm released on Friday the 13th of March 2020, and as such is available now on all good podcast platforms, including Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube and Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can find us across social media too, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for The Loathsome Lantern Worm. I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to it and returning to Summer Isle. And thank you to the Folklore Podcast for having me. I hope everyone enjoyed this mixed approach episode to the story of the Lampton Worm. And my thanks go to everyone who has contributed to this episode of the podcast. Volunteers Lara Corey and Polar SK provided extra research notes for this episode. Celine Paxton Brooks, the film review. And Roly Veach, the rendition of the song. And of course, my thanks to Stephen for talking about the audio drama. Finally, to play us out today, here's a performance by artist L. M. Cook, who provides some of the music for the Loathsome Lampton Worm audio drama. This is from her album Nursery Rhymes for the Apocalypse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Seas calm and flat and still, and the frozen water extends until the horizon steals my soul from me, and the ice is all that I can see. Thank you.
Jenny's crew were buried at sea. Six men, a woman, and a dog, all at sea. But the Jenny felt eerie, and the Jenny felt cold. So it's back to the hope for the sake of our souls. <laughs> 